If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. In our passage today, the Lord's promise to David of a dynasty is the subject. Now, as we walk through this book, it's important to realize that David has made two attempts to get the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. The first attempt failed miserably as he did not pay attention to God's holiness in terms of how you transport the Ark anywhere. After learning that hard lesson, the second attempt was an obedient, obedient episode of following God's word and um, really worshiping him and regarding him in the proper way, which led to the successful carrying of the ark in the manner prescribed into Jerusalem. And as we look at this chapter, chapter 7, we should be, once again, encouraged greatly. As we, as we open this text, it's very tempting in a passage such as this to spend the whole time just dissecting the promise that we see in the Davidic covenant, the promise God made to David. And if we just do that, just concentrate on dissecting dissecting the promise, we miss what I think is the real underlying message, and that is what this passage tells us about the covenant God. In other words, we're going to focus this morning mainly on the promiser, the one who gives the promise instead of the other way around. And this is the approach we really should use in all of Scripture because God's Word is primarily His revelation to us about who He is and specifically about how His plan of redemption is the focus of it all. In the Old Testament, everything points to Jesus coming as the Messiah. In the New Testament, the Messiah comes fulfills the law, dies in the place of those he came to save, rises from the dead in victory, and sends his people and dwelt with his spirit to make disciples of all nations. Everything in the word of God points to Jesus. And every time we come to God's word, we must come to it with this big picture in mind. Now, we have some gifts in our congregation. People who lead and teach us in God's word, and it's drilled into us. What does this passage say about God? Well, that's what we're doing this morning. Here in 2 Samuel 7, the first 17 verses, we see another part of this redemptive plan. 
being revealed here to King David. What God reveals about himself in these verses is not necessarily new, but it is certainly compelling for everyone who has been saved by him. So if you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Samuel 7, the first 17 verses. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where, I've, where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why? Have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, what do we see here? What do we learn? What do we know is true? In verse 1, we see that David now has a, has a house in his capital city. All his surrounding enemies were more or less quiet for the moment. In other words, it was stable. The Philistines weren't completely subdued, but like the rest of these enemies, their days were numbered. And we'll see that in chapters 8 and 10. In verse 2, we see that Something is on David's mind. 
And you can tell it's something that's very important to him. Something that he just can't ignore. And for the very first time, we're introduced to Nathan the prophet here. Whom, if you know the story of this whole scenario of David's life, Nathan plays a really important role. And here's a man we'll come to know, therefore, very well as we keep going in 2 Samuel. Uh, David and Nathan, the king and the prophet, are together, and David decides to bring up to the prophet what's been bothering him. David says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember how very important it was for David to bring the ark to Jerusalem? The ark signified what? The very presence of God. And David, as the king, rightly desired that the Lord's presence must be the central focus and the reality of his kingdom. And we know, as we've just finished this part of Scripture, that it took two attempts and some hard lessons, but the ark was now in Jerusalem. But it just didn't seem right that the king had a better house to live in than the real king. So what's David thinking? He's thinking there's... Something wrong when the Lord's servant lives in a cedar house while the sign of the Lord's presence sits among curtains. Nathan hears all this in verse 3, and it makes so much sense and seems so right that he says, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. In verses 4 and 5, notice what the first word is. Verse 4. But the human plan must be corrected here by divine revelation. Do you notice that the one thing we see very clearly in all of Scripture is how limited God's servants really are? Let's rehearse and remember some of these incidents of how limited God's servants really are. The very beginning, Eli the priest, thinking that strange-acting woman in the tabernacle was drunk back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Well, he was wrong. Hannah was not drunk. She was distressed. And then Samuel, on seeing Jesse's son, Eliab, thinking that he must surely be the one that God was choosing as the next king, since his outward appearance, his physique was so striking back in 1 Samuel 16. But he was wrong. And earlier, David, thinking that executing justice upon Nabal and all his household was what should be done in 1 Samuel 25, and then discovering he was wrong, saying to Abigail, for as surely as the Lord the God of Israel lives who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly by morning there wouldn't have been anyone left to Nabal. 1 Samuel 25. Well, here we see it again. 
in verses 1 through 5, we see David airing out his idea to Nabal, I mean Nathan, and they both think it's a good and right plan, that it will honor the Lord. Their motives are good. They're sincere, but that's not what God wanted at that particular time. God's servants often mean well, but lack the wisdom of God. So this human plan is about to be corrected by the word of the Lord. The truth of the matter is, and I know this strikes us all, but we need to be stricken. The kingdom of God is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands may be. And we see that over and over and over and over again. And we're about ready to jump into 2 Samuel where David is the king and what are we going to see there? The same truth. Many of the Lord's servants are often lacking in properly discerning God's will. Now there's something especially dangerous about the other side of this, of this point. We can apply this truth to the extreme measure of not regarding anyone else besides ourselves as the final authority on how to study and interpret truth. See that? So we make ourselves and our opinion as the judge and jury. I'm betting that there's a whole lot of you who have either been in or seen that scenario. In other words, you've seen godly leaders all of a sudden make horrendous decisions with unbelievable consequences. So you chuck it all and say, I'm going to be the only one who decides these things. I'm not going to trust anybody or anything besides my interpretation. I've lived in a place where a large community of people who were believers actually lived that way. It was scary. Now, I'm not going to go to this conference and learn from these guys. I'm not going to read these things. I'm going to just, because they're all whatever. So you get both sides. So there's two lessons here. We should be careful not to give our Christian heroes the status that only belongs to God and more or less deify them. But secondly, we should realize our own need and weakness, which should make us desire to cry out to the Lord for the wisdom that we lack in every situation. I think James 1 speaks to this. Wisdom is given by God as we search and dig for it, as we apply the word of life, word to life situations, as we humbly set our minds and be transformed through the learning of and application of the truth of God's word. Nathan thought it was a great idea. Yeah, go. The Lord's with you. Does it say even 
prayed about it? See what's missing there? This is humbling. We need to be humbled in this way. So what's the first thing we learn about God in this passage? God is wise. The Lord is wise. And to emphasize this, how about a quote from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm not sure about the details of your life experience, but I think we all can say that we have to learn this lesson many times as we walk through life. The moment we think we've got it, we don't listen, we don't go before the Lord, he shows us, wow, my ways are higher than your ways. And you didn't understand this part of it. So the Lord came to Nathan and he said, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? in verse 5. The human plan is being corrected. And next, in verses 6 and 7, we see really an incredible explanation by the Lord as to why David's plan must be tabled until the right time. What the second thing we learn about God in these two verses? That the Lord is really humble. He's letting us know why. He didn't have to, but he is. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 7. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The Lord has been completely content to move about in a tent wherever his people went. Not only that, he never asked or commanded any of his people to build him a house of cedar. In other words, what's God saying? How can I settle down when my people are unsettled? God shares the rigors of the journeys of his people. But isn't that just David's point? Isn't now the time since God's people are in the land with his chosen king, me, and somewhat stable? Well, it may look to David like it's the time. And obviously it looks to Nathan like it's the time. What a good idea. But God is saying that he must make a secure place for Israel first. And we see that later in verse 10. Verse 10 of chapter 7 says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place 
and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. The process isn't complete yet. God's will, God will not rest until he gives rest to his people, is the picture. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Have you ever thought about God like that? Two weeks ago, we saw the tragedy of not regarding God as holy in that ark incident. And yet, just the fact that God signified his presence among his people with the ark of the covenant, as he explains right here, should deeply move us. I've been traveling around in a tent with all the sons of Israel. You ever known anybody, really known somebody in a high position of power, whether politically, militarily, anything? And if you have, have you ever seen a person like that show up somewhere where they, you're thinking they should never be, and you didn't even recognize them because they were right there with everybody else? helping or serving someone in a time of need? Every once in a while in history you hear stories about this, about someone you never expected, and usually the people that are there finally realize who this is. It's getting their hands dirty with them or serving them in a death of a family member or just show up to help where you never expected them to be, and what do the people do? They're amazed. They're amazed. And what will God do in sending his son? If we see what God says here, we should, be, we, we should not be totally surprised by passages like, for instance, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, he, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We see both there. We see the Lord condescending in humility, not lording it over. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. So we've seen, what do we know about God? We see his wisdom. We see his humility. And then thirdly, we see that the Lord is so gracious. Remember this. When you hear somebody say, oh, in the Old Testament, it's just judgment, fire all the time. Remember this. You see God's grace all through it. And these verses, in verses 8 through 11, 
here in chapter 7, we hear God himself explaining to his servant David, first, how David has experienced God's grace, and then second, how God promises more grace to David and his people. First, God reminds David of how his grace has been extended to him already. How did he do that? We see three aspects of God's grace to David here. Look at verse 8. In the Lord's choice of David, I made you king when you were following sheep. Talk about a contrast. And then secondly, in the Lord's presence with David, in verse 9, the first part of verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went. And then in the last part of verse 9, we see the Lord's power. We see God's grace to David in his power and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Three aspects of God's grace right here demonstrated already to David. And then secondly, we see God promising his grace to David and his people. First, to David. In the last part of verse 9. And I will make for you a great name. And then God promises his grace to God's people, to his people in verse 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, etc., etc., and then back to David in the, la in the last part of verse 11. And I will give you rest more your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The most important thing to grasp here is that this future grace is not in response to David building a house or a temple for the Lord. You get that? God, I want to build you a house because I've got a better one than you do, the, at least housing the ark, which signifies your presence. What would that be? Well, I built you a house, so that's why you're giving me this grace. That's the way we think. God goes to extreme measures here to put that idea to rest, and we need to learn from this. We need to learn from it. Because we see here that God put that plan about building a house or a temple for the Lord on hold. In fact, let's put two verses together that explain what's going on. In verse 5b, the Lord asked, Would you, David, build me a house to dwell in? And then God says something quite remarkable down in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. See that? Would you build me a house, David? And then the Lord says, I'll make you a house. Well, what's he talking about? A house can mean either a place with a walls, walls and a roof, or, as in here, a collection of people as a family or a household. So God makes a play on words here. Belief is smiling. A play on words. God made 
says this often in his word, saying that David would not be the one to build him a place with walls and a roof, a temple, but he, the Lord, would make David a collection of people as a family, meaning what? A dynasty. So the Lord takes David's idea of wanting to build a temple for the Lord and turns it around. He uses this opportunity to promise David a dynasty that will be made sure forever. Verse 16. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow. What's going on here? God's gracious promise seems to take on a meaning that is far beyond anything that an earthly king could hope for. And unlike the pagan cultures around Israel, God is making a clear and unmistakable statement that no king can make a claim on the Lord's favor by building him a temple. Now, our personal designs may not be that large, but how often do you get into a mindset of, I've been really good for two days. It's about time for a big blessing. I've had my quiet time at least five days in a row. It's time for a big blessing. We think like this, and it's wrong. It's backwards. I'll do this for you, God, so that you'll bless me. Instead, what God does here is go over the past grace that he's shown to David, and then he bestows more grace upon grace, like that phrase that's in the Word, as he looks to the future, and he's put, putting the plan for the temple on the back burner for right now to get this point across. And there's something else to notice here. The grace that's promised to Israel is sandwiched between the promises specifically to David. And this tells us that Israel's security is at the center of God's concern. In other words, this is a sandwich. The promises are the top bun, the bottom bun, the meat of the thing. What you're really biting into is God's concern for his people. God establishes the Davidic dynasty for the sake of God's people. David will not be exalted for his own sake, but for the good of Israel. David's kingship is to be the instrument by which the Lord's exodus redemption, that whole process, reaches its goal to plant Israel safely in the land that he gave them. The Lord intends David's kingship to bring in a new era of safety and security, ending the turmoil of the years of the judges and Saul. Now we, of course, now know something, don't we? We know now that the king's in David's line, by and large, failed miserably to promote a secure place for Israel 
and or Judah. And the people actually eventually were what? Hauled off to exile in Babylon. So does God cancel his program? Was he wrong? The Messiah did come, bringing a new kingdom. And the ultimate promise is that the Lord will bring his people into a city so safe that the gates can be left wide open. Revelation 21, 25. The new Jerusalem. You know, it's one historical note here. How long did David's dynasty actually last? Even with some kings who were there, but, you know, maybe the people were in the process of not being here. Close, around 400 years. Everybody talks about the great dynasties of Egypt, the great dynasty of this or that. Egypt's dynasty lasted maybe 200, 250 years. So even in their failure, David's dynasty lasted a long time. But that's not the point. The point is that God does not cancel his program. And even these things point to the future. Something we can hope in as secure. So all these thoughts lead to another thing we learn about God. Got these yet? God is wise. God is humble. God is gracious. And he's constant. The Lord is constant, which means unwavering permanent, loyal, steadfast, um, firm, unchanging, that's immutable, unswerving, abiding, enduring, stable, incessant, every kind of synonym you can think of, constant. Look what he says about his promise to David in verses 12 through 16. First, and this is what we need to rehearse in our heads when it doesn't look like anything is possible, that all things are wrong. First, death does not annul his promise in verses 12 through 13. Let's read that. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, i.e. dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall co- who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. David may die, but the Lord will raise up David's offspring. Who's he specifically talking about here? Solomon. Secondly, sin cannot destroy his promise. Verses 14 and 15. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Not if he and his offspring commits iniquity. 
notice that? Not if, but when. God knows. So what will a reigning David king discover when he commits iniquity? Well, let's put it this way. What will he discover again? Except now he's a king. That having the Lord for a father is not all warmth and intimacy, but also discipline and punishment. Verse 15, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Remember this when we get to the parts of this book where David has just blown it and his consequences, the consequences of that sin, look irreparable. If the promise depended on human fidelity, it would be doomed from the start. Just like if your salvation is dependent on your decision, it would be doomed before it even starts. When the Lord is the Lord is going to be dealing with sinful kings, but he will not allow sin to have dominion over his dominion. And that's what we see play out here as we get going. God will certainly chasten and punish Davidic kings who go astray. But that judgment will never go so far as to involve a total removal of his covenant love and the changing of his plan. In other words, David's line will never meet Saul's end. The idea here is that any individual Davidic king may meet disaster because of his infidelity, but that will not overthrow the promised endurance of the Davidic dynasty. The future king, who is that? Jesus, the Messiah, will come and did come. And while the specific promise here is aimed at Solomon, who would build a house and a temple for the Lord, the dynasty promise extends all the way to Jesus Christ. It's an incredible passage. Death does not annul the promise. Sin does not destroy this promise. And thirdly, time will not exhaust his promise. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And here we see the determination of God Almighty. David pro David's promised offspring rules forever, and that's talking about Christ's kingdom. It's pointing to Christ's kingdom. We will endure forever, be established forever, and will rule forever. And what happened to David's line in history underscores the point here. I've already mentioned the time frame. Think about it. His dynasty lasted 400 years, which is much longer than average. I mentioned Egypt, but also Mesopotamia is usually mentioned in these. Even though David's kingship didn't reign after the fall of Jerusalem, 
the Davidic line continued, as we see in Matthew verse 1, chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, where we see the genealogy until it surfaced in Jesus, the Messiah Christ. In other words, you can smash Jerusalem and cart exiles off to Babylon, but you can't break God's forever. This is hope. Sure hope. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So let death, sin, and time do what they will, but they will never frustrate the Lord's kingdom plan through David's dynasty, his house. It's inevitable. Why? Why is it inevitable? We need to know how to answer this. It's inevitable because of who promised it. God promised it. It's inevitable. So the Lord is wise, humble, gracious, and constant. And notice that these particular characteristics of God are seen clearly now. They come here in the text after David was again reminded of God's holiness with that ark incident is when these things come to the fore. When we get to know God as he presents himself here, he is what we find meets our deepest needs. So, search the scriptures for what is true about God, not for some formula to give you a blessing. Watch what you read. Search the scriptures to know God the promiser, the keeper of his promise. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for this incredible reminder of who you are as you've established this covenant with David and let us see it to see your grace and how you dealt with him. What you promised to him to your people who know you now through Christ Jesus the Lord. What an incredible encouragement this text is to all of us. As uncertainty and questions remain as they do for all times in history. We pray that you would keep before our eyes who you are in the scriptures that you've given us and that we will be faithful to search for these truths that are right here before us. And we thank you that we are reassured this morning that Jesus is the King of Kings, that we belong to him, that his kingdom is secure, that our future is secure. And on that basis, we can proclaim the gospel that you will use as a power to bring people to know you, the power of salvation. And we glorify you. We praise you. We pray that our lives would reflect the truth about you. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. You're dismissed.